0: Good day. Welcome to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus at Exeter University. He is the author of well over 100 books, and he is without a doubt the most prolific author and historian writing in the Anglophone world today. And we're going to be speaking about The Great War, Origins and Causes. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Uh, Professor, uh, what do you make of the following two statements? The first one is from Annika Mombauer, wherein she states, quote, While most decision-makers in Vienna and Berlin did not actually want a war, the available evidence shows that they were certainly willing to risk it, unquote. Yes, I would
1: say that that is a reasonable statement.
0: Now, the second statement is from a contemporary at the time, Sir Eric Crowe, in which he states, "quote Germany is aiming at a political dictatorship in Europe." Unquote.
1: I think that's true of some elements in the German leadership. I'm I'm always slightly wary of the idea that you could aggregate many millions of people, or even a, new, a complete. Um, uh, decision-making group. I think what the key element is this, that a lot of the discussion about the origins of World War I in recent years, and there's been some excellent books, has focused very much on the immediate uh, diplomatic precipitance, particularly, uh, obviously, the period from the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo up to the varied declarations of war. That, I think, is very pertinent, and I think there are a number of good books, and I'm quite happy to discuss those with you. But I think a more important context is that of active military planning for aggressive and offensive warfare designed to take advantage of circumstances. And I think if one's focusing on that and... um, then you can see a substantive difference between, on the one hand, Austria and Germany, where I think there is very clearly a willingness to use force in order to uh, alter the relationship between the European powers, and in particular Britain and France, where there is, of course, planning for war, uh, but there is not the same interest in causing a war in order to have such a change. And I think the two phrases that that you used are interesting because, I mean, I would put it slightly differently. I think there was a militaristic culture in Berlin and Vienna which made an opting for war easier and, for many people, even desirable, whereas I think there is much less militarism to the fore in either London or Paris.
0: Uh, let us um, let us actually use your statement as um means of uh, broaching out the subject in various directions. But one um, um, thing I would like to ask you is, how can one say that, say, uh, Austria-Hungary, Vienna, as it were, uh, for the purpose of our conversation was, quote, militaristic, unquote, but I think it had, in terms of uh, percentages of the available male population, the least um, uh, number of men under arms um, of any of the great powers, as well as, uh, I think, the lowest military budget.
1: Well, the reason I would call it militaristic is because um, social figures in the elite uh, were in and involved in the military, and the head of state uh, was linked to the military in a way that I simply don't think that you could argue in the case of France, where in fact there is profound ambivalence about the army which has been accentuated most recently by the Dreyfus affair and the um, there is almost—I mean—it's going too far to say—a war between the radical parliamentarians and the army in Paris. But the sense that the army uh, was a force that could not be relied upon, that it was inherently anti-republican, was much—you uh, know—was much stronger there. Whereas, of course, the army in um, both Austria and Germany. Was much more linked to the uh, head of state and um, the loyalty was not in any way compromised. Again, there's an interesting situation um, in England. There had been, as you know, sorry, Britain, there had been, as you know, uh, more specifically over Ireland and the so called Curra Mutiny, a developing crisis between the Liberal government and the military leadership, and there was the question indeed in 1914 as to the determination of the Liberal government, which was dependent on votes from Irish home rulers to get its legislation through Parliament, but anyway was you know interested in Irish home rule, had long been committed to it, and there was the, uh, the point that the, the army, particularly those units of the army in Ireland, was completely opposed to it and was strongly in favor of what we would call a unionist position. And um, there was the question of whether the army was a reliable and whether force would be used by it or at its expense. Um, now, that's a very different political context to the relationship between, say, uh, Moltke and uh, Wilhelm II or between Holtzendorf and uh, Franz Josef. So I do think there is a different context. I mean, you know, I'm quite prepared to accept that um, you can use indices which suggest, for example, British expenditure on the Navy you can show is very high. Um, But I I, I, I just simply don't see that naval expenditure um, as an inherently aggressive policy uh, predetermined in order to um, uh, dictate a political agenda in Europe um, whereas I would suggest to you that the German army's interest in acting before the French financed Russian railways aided mobilization plans um, what Moltke saw as a window of opportunity to act I would say that was an inherently more aggressive temperament um, and context within which policies were evolved and Interestingly enough, I think in the case of Austria, I, I accept your position. There are diffi- there are difficulties for the Austrians, but precisely because there are difficulties, precisely that there is a concern about Sa- South Slavic nationalism being encouraged by uh, elements in Serbia. There is a determination on a show of force to, as it were, uh, teach the Serbs a lesson, as it were. Now. Um, you can have your own views as to whether you regard that as uh, as militaristic. I, I myself think it is. I think that there were enough figures in the Austrian elite. I think the Larry Sondhaus biography, very distinguished uh, American scholar, his biography of Holzendorf is a pretty damning indictment of the man, his intentions and his influence. And, you know, I just simply don't see any individual acting in a comparable light in either Paris or London.
0: Uh, Going back to sort of the background before the immediate crisis of July 1914, would you agree with uh, David Stevenson in his book Armaments and the Coming of War in Europe, wherein he states that uh, uh, there was, prior to 1914, a European arms race which had been started by Russia and which, uh, by the spring of 1914, Russia was uh, winning?
1: Um, there was certainly had been for a long time competition to have the most advanced weaponry. I wouldn't say that it started with Russia. I think you can take it a long way back. Um, in essence, there is a fundamental similarity of armaments in the age of the smoothbore. Uh, Guns, um, which really is superseded um, early in the 19th century as shell ammunition as opposed to round shot comes in, as you move increasingly to steel as opposed to iron, as you move increasingly to rifled barrels as opposed to smoothbore. And as a result of that, both land and sea warfare and capability and with the sea, of course, you can add to that the move to have iron warships in place of wooden ones. And you can move to different forms of, of, of armor. So you move from iron eventually through to steel, etc. Now, um, and you move to marine turbine engines. I mean, the, the, the point is, I would be very loath to say that that gives you an arms race starting at a specific moment there are arms races within that context that are particularly bilateral. Let us say, uh, Navy, Britain and France in the late 1850s, uh, Britain and Germany in the uh, 1900s, um, and there are, as you will know, the the similar situation on land. I mean, what is interesting in the wars of German unification is that um, you have a... Um, differing effectiveness in handheld firearms from an artillery, and each side, as it were, tries to jump the other. Now, if you're looking specifically at the 1900s, as you were doing citing Stevenson, Russia had been very heavily defeated by Japan in the Russo-Japanese War. And in the aftermath of the Russo-Japanese War, the Russians, of course, try and rebuild uh, their armies. No doubt at all about that. Uh, much less uh, do they devote energies to rebuilding their navy. Um, Germany is principally in the late 19th century being focused not on the um, Russians, but has been principally focused on the French. And that um, situation is uh, made uh, more volatile in the 1900s. Uh, in part because of the degree to which the Russians are rearming after their defeat by the Japanese, in part because of the nature of French-Russian relations, and in part as a completely separate force profile because of the determination of Wilhelm II and Tirpitz to try and challenge what they see as the British naval hegemony. So I think you've got a number of different agendas there, I would be very loath indeed to put my finger on one particular date as, quote, starting an arms race. Um, You know, again, I have great admiration for David Stevenson. I haven't got that passage in front of me, but I don't believe that he would be so naive as to suggest that there weren't a whole series of what you might call bilateral arms races within a broader context of um a general determination to take advantage of new technology in order to enhance capability. Now we can call that an arms race. Um, I, I think actually a fairer term would be the one I've just used, a general determination to take advantage of new technology and in particular to not fall behind uh, the technologies of other powers. So um, in many respects um the, the naval technology changes, whether in armament, whether in armor, uh, whether in marine propulsion, um, inherently make previous military systems, pro- platforms, as it were, to use the modern term, anachronistic. Uh, and that creates a pressure. Um, but, you know, there's a pressure within a context in which it is by no means clear to many powers what will be the eventual alignments, and therefore what their taskings are going to be, so you know um, the Russians spend a certain amount of money on fortress artillery, which is largely a waste of time um, you don't it's very difficult to tell what is and is not going to be an appropriate usage of expenditure. in fact, you could argue if you wanted to be controversial that the in terms of the finance that the German expenditure on the Navy is a waste of time, but of course that assumes a perfect knowledge of the tasks that they are going to be um, called upon to to face and the context within which they're going to do that, and of course no power had that.
0: Uh, Davidson, I'm sorry, Stevenson dates his, um, uh, in his book, he states the um, outbreak of the arms race from 1908 to 1910, uh, he does say that the Russian uh, expansion which um, began it, the arms race, was to some degree inadvertent, uh, merely a uh, wish to uh, rearm after the debacle of the Russo-Japanese War, but that unfortunately um, had repercussions which initiated an arms race and uh, you had increases in terms of both qualitative and quantitative by the various powers. Um, what would you make of the statement by the uh, German historian, Stefan Schmidt, uh, who has recently argued that in the years immediately prior to 1914, you saw French foreign policy becoming increasingly militant in backing Russian policy in the Balkans? I think Russian policy in the Balkans uh, beginning in 1912 is something we also need to take a look at.
1: Well, as I said, I mean, I mean, you know you and i we've discussed this in the past. I mean, I am more critical of Germany than you are, and that's fair enough there is there is room for a discussion. but my own view, as i've said is is and we've discussed this is it you know it is Germany investing, for example, in advanced artillery to blow their way through the fortresses near, near Liège, uh, it is not the equivalent of the French making a serious propi- provision of artillery in order to blow its way through fortresses that are going to stop it crossing the Rhine. So I think that um, I would very much look at um, intentionality alongside expenditure Um, But, you know, obviously there are other people that would take a different viewpoint on this. Um, For the French, who had a smaller army than the Germans, whose population is smaller, who know that under systems of conscription and reservists, they are always going to be outnumbered, who do not know what the British are going to do, and anyway know that the British have only a small regular army and do not have conscription. For the French, there is an acute sense of being vulnerable, to um, to Germany and therefore there is a wish to ally with other powers that can offset Germany. Now, it's not the same as necessarily being aggressive. I mean, it's rather like, you know, writing a history of the 1980s in which you announce that um, the American policy of aligning with China was clearly aggressive towards the Soviet Union. I don't think that's the case at all. I think the fear was that the Soviet Union would be aggressive and that alliance with China would weaken or offset the risk of Chinese attack. So I think one has to understand that, um, you know, an offsetting process, the process of trying to develop an alliance strategy which will discourage or deter one's opponent from acting is not the same as aggression now obviously that's that that requires a an interpretation which you know other people are going to contest and they can contest it in their own terms either in guide either with reference to intentionality or with reference to implementation and both of those can and have been argued Um, and i think that you know in in here we're talking about interpretation but to my mind, there is a substantive difference between the intentionality of Germany and Austria on the one hand, and the intentionality of its opponents. I've, I'm fully aware that people don't all agree with that view, but that's that's the view I would concur with. And I'd I'd like to take it a stage further, Charles, in, in in a wider sense. I um, you know, you're very, you know, I know this. You're very uh, more supportive of Christopher Clark's interpretation of World War One than I am, and. You know, when um, the Sleepwalkers came out, uh, it was not too dissimilar a period from President Putin's actions in Crimea, and I postulated the argument that in a hundred years' time, the equivalent of Christopher Clark would be producing a book to argue that Putin was acting defensively against the aggression of the NATO powers. And it was published in the London Monthly News magazine. Standpoint, and I would stand by my point because my point was that intentionality is the clear point. You can always produce an argument. You could produce an argument if you like at the present moment that Iran is a passive state brutally put upon by some Israeli plot, but that's rubbish. And I mean, the fact is, the Israelis clearly have to counter Iranian, um, you know, Iranian. Uh, military uh, deployment outside Iran, and they have to think about how best to do so. But, uh, you know, people will always say that the deterrent policies of others represent aggression. And, you know, I was well used as a young man to listening to apologists for the Soviet Union and whom there were no shortage of apologists um, in both Britain and the United States telling you faithfully that the Soviet Union was a peaceful system and that it was NATO that was aggressive. And to my mind, this was nonsense. And I think that it's fair to say that subsequent scholarly work, I mean, insofar as access has been possible in the Soviet Union, has suggested that it was nonsense. And I have to say, I remain much more sceptical than you do. I, you know, you're fully entitled to have a different point of view. We're offering different points of view. But I am much more sceptical about the outset of World War I being a matter of, as it were, as sleepwalkers suggest, um, you know, equal blame. I simply do not see that. Now, I, of course, am a military historian. So my perspective is more that of a military historian. Um, and, you know, the diplomatic historians and somebody who I think's book is better than that of Clark is Thomas Otter's book, you know, argues that there are mistakes made by a number of powers, including those whom one might as trying to operate in a benign fashion and you know, I think it's reasonable to say that the Liberal government of Britain was in that position and there may well have been mistakes made in how one moved information around the system but that's not the same as all having a similar intention of being willing to fight.
0: Well, I, I um, uh, Again, in my case I come from a diplomatic historian's uh, background um, but um, with I don't necessarily disagree with what you say, it's merely the fact that uh, I think there are another, a number of um, contingent, contingent variables which um, prevent us from having, for lack of a better expression, I think that's basically your perspective is uh, is what I would characterize as a neo-Fischerite uh, interpretation of what I occurred. I think that's
1: very fair. No, I think that's a very fair statement, Charles, very fair. Should we explain to the listeners? Would you like to explain? Because I talk too much. <laughs> oh uh, no, be, be,
0: be my guest. Because we've never actually spoken about uh, Fritz Fischer, so I would I'd be actually curious to uh, hear what you how you describe him and well, his school.
1: Fritz, Fritz, yeah, I mean Fritz Fischer was a major German scholar. Um, he produced. Um, a number of works, in, but he made his name by arguing that Wilhelmine Germany, the Germany of Wilhelm II, was um, aggressive in its intentions and had a Weltpolitik um, which was genuinely disruptive, and he used that uh, as part of either explicitly or subliminally, depending upon what point you're looking at in his writings to to try and undercut what he saw as an attempt after 1945 by uh, the new um, Adenauer system, as it were, to look for a, a, a benign German past which was uh, located in the Wilhelmine period and to present, as it were, the Nazi period as that of a sort of... Uh, aberration from a more benign Germany, and what Fischer is arguing, and you know he goes on as you know to write um also about the later period, what he's arguing is for fundamental continuities in uh german policy making, and this caused an enormous row, I think that's fair to say. And it was a row that was picked up. I mean, not all German historiographical rows, not least because they generally, if you've ever, well, you've obviously read the first chapter of most German books, are mind-numbing in their in their conceptual and methodological discussion. So, not all German historiographical wrangles are picked up in Britain or the United States, but this was, and it was significant as well because I think it interacted with the debate in Britain in which people like H. J. P. Taylor and Hugh Trevor Roper were having a contentious views against each other, so pretty well the leading historians of that period, about the origins of World War Two. So for British readers, this was a debate about the origins of World War Two as well as the origins of World War One. and subliminally that was the case, I think, with a lot of the German debate. And I agree with you, Charles, that when you say that in part um, what I'm discussing here is not just um, the relationship between uh, military planning and political intention in the run-up to World War I, but also the same in the run-up to World War Two, because I think there is a methodological analogy. I I would be loath to say that the um, ideology is coterminous. I don't think that is the case, but I do think that for scholars there is a methodolo- methodological a parallel that is worth thinking about, which is that how do you build into the analysis of international relations military factors? And I think that is a genuine problem, and I don't have an easy answer, and I don't think anybody else does. And I think World War One poses that in a very interesting fashion, both because of the system as a whole and because of the individual players. But could I ask you to add, for the benefit of of, of the listeners, your particular views are on the Fisher controversy?
0: Well, um, uh, basically, Fisher's um, arguments basically are from two books. The first book, in in the original German translation, which was more evocative, "Griffnacht der Weltmacht," which roughly translated means "the leap to world power." I think in in the UK or the the English language translation is Germany's aims in the First World War. Um, But um, in essence, uh, Fisher argues in that book, and in particular. His second book, the German title, I Do Not Remember, it deals with German policy between 1911 and 1914, whereas his first book dealt mostly with German war aims and German policy during the Great War itself. Uh, but in essence, the second book uh, posits uh, German intentionality uh, to uh, commence a great war Uh, He he has it for a variety of different reasons, partly domestic um, pressures on the German ruling elite from uh, socialists, etc., and partly because um, the balance of power was to some degree uh, running against Germany, but also because of uh, this is where he ties it in with his first book. uh, Germany aimed to becoming a hegemonic power in dominant hegemonic power in continental Europe, and the um, uh, commencement of the Great War, from his perspective, was to be a launching pad for that, so that's how he ties it up with uh, his first book. Now, I think for most diplomatic historians, even for someone like Thomas Ott, which, which is um, it's uh, interesting you mentioned it to him, because in his book, Dealing with the July Crisis, Ott Um, moves away from a position which he had 10 years earlier. If you read various, um, he didn't write a monograph on the July crisis before the one he wrote in uh, 2014, 2013, but he did have a number of articles and book reviews. And at that point, 10 years earlier, he was much closer to, for lack of a better expression, could be labeled a neo-Fischerite interpretation, meaning that Germany was the primary actor in the July crisis. Its policies and its intentions were the key to the crisis um, unfolding the way it did. I think that's that's basically your, still your interpretation. And in his um, book, Dealing with the July Crisis, he moves away from that. He no longer has that fischer, neo-Fischerite interpretation, which Germany is the primary actor for if you wanted to Cast legalistic um, labels would say Germany was the um, prime, uh, for lack of expression, criminal or, if you like, um, uh, guilty party. And he no longer has that position. He moves away from that. I think that's partly based on an accumulation of studies um, over the 10 or 15 years prior to 2014, wherein that the neo Fisherite interpretation, which I can tell you, honestly, I myself had for quite a long time, um, it's not; it's difficult not to be impressed with Fisher's arguments. It's just that if one stands back and looks at them in light of the subsequent um, scholarship of the 20 years uh, prior to 1914, one sees that the argument doesn't really hold up. Um, at least in terms of you're seeing German intentionality and policies falling from intentionality as adding to a, a German goal for hegemony in Europe, continental Europe, and it doesn't hold up because um, there are other factors and variables which go to explain much better policies in not only Germany but the other powers in the crisis. As I mentioned before, well
1: i think particularly austria i mean i i would say that if you go back to the fischer period uh, on the whole uh, you know, to you know to be crude uh, germany was taken as very much taking the lead and austria as being a sort of an um, other runner and um i would say more recently um the emphasis has been on the sort of failure maybe the wrong word but the um the, the degree to which Austria had, um, well, to a degree, led Germany into the crisis. I think one might say that that is a slightly more emphasized or considerably more emphasized. I mean, one of the points I would, would make is that Fischer's argument about the challenge of, as he saw it, socialism, is a parallel with um, the argument that the um, anxieties about ethnicity um, uh, within the Habsburg Empire has this sort of notion of the domestic crisis has plays a role in Austria and the idea of trying to act in order to um, confront uh, that situation um, if we could sort of pull back a second I mean a lot of the work on the recent years uh, it doesn't really address the question but Um, It's not, as it were, if we were looking at an international crisis now, when you have states that have a relatively low percentage of their expenditure devoted to uh, military purposes. The states we're talking about had very significant expenditure levels on the military, and In running, I mean, obviously the British and the Americans weren't running conscription systems, but most of these states were running conscription systems, which required people to be willing to give up their life without any consent. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just simply describing what the situation was Um, in the supposition and planning that war may well occur. Um, And indeed, they were planning very actively for it. I mean, the reservists, when they're called up, are not sitting around having a chat about political economy. As you know, much of the male population of Europe, up to the age of 40, spent a significant portion of the summer um, engaged in life and death manoeuvres, often using live fire, indeed, Um, and with often new technology playing a role, such as machine guns. So I'm not sure that I'm always happy... With moving to a context which discusses this in terms of um, diplomatic or international relations of the diplomatic, uh, from the diplomatic perspective, understanding of the situation. I mean, I would agree with you that there are deficiencies in the Fisher thesis. I think that's fairly apparent. Um, and one always has to be careful of reading from rhetoric to practice. I mean, after all, as you know, these are the years with the development of geopolitical thought, um, most actively in Germany, Ratzel, and in Britain, and but That doesn't mean, although both of those men were influential, Um, That doesn't mean that necessarily that, you know, policy is being determined by geopolitics. Um, So one has to be cautious. But again, looked at differently. What the hell else is Germany building this enormous navy for? They don't need the navy for the defense of the Baltic. They don't need the navy for the defense of. Inshore waters, they can rely on the extensive minefields they've laid near Heligoland and the fortifications there to protect um, the entrance to the Kiel Canal and so on. I mean, the purpose of building the navy, which is very clear, is a version of Weltpolitik, however you wish to define it. And um, the Kaiser has, uh, sorry, Wilhelm II has Mahan translated into German. He reads Mahan, he's very interested in it. Um, you know, he's not reading it for fun. He sees this as a prospectus of a new age of technology, which German industry enables him to pursue. So, while I fully understand that there are critics, and I indeed do not agree with everything that Fisher has said, and I've written accordingly. Um, while uh, you know, I whilst I agree with that, I do think people have. Thrown away the notion of a German pursuit of Weltpolitik far too readily, and I don't see the equivalent uh, elsewhere. I mean, you know, I mean it is very noticeable that the three states with the largest navy in this period are of course Britain, Germany, and guess where, which has developed a navy very rapidly?
0: Well, the United States.
1: The United States, which again is projecting the Great White Fleet, the development of the Panama Canal, is developing a global geopolitics to use a new military technology to advance, and in its case, it's producing ships with with a capacity to carry far more fuel so they can go much greater distances. They're not doing that for domestic defense. Um, so I think that one needs to think about these military di- this military dimension. And as I've said, I, you know, I fully I'm not trying to be difficult here, you know. I, uh, I but I, I really do think that too much of the writing of the origins of World War One. And you know, I'm a friend of Thomasotti, but I, and I told him this. I think that there's not enough in his in his book on the military dimension. It was a war that was being planned for, not a peace conference. Um, and I do think that, uh, that the war dimension and the dimension of military planning and the related intelligence uh, material is not a military intelligence material I'm, being, I'm talking about, not that that's refracted through the diplomatic agencies. I don't think is playing enough of a role. But I fully accept that other people disagree with me. That's fine. But I do think that view ought to be put, and I think there is room, I, you know, I'm probably too long gone in the tooth, but I think there is room for somebody to write a differing account which puts more of an emphasis on um, the effect of playing through a crisis in the context of so much military preparedness in that situation.
0: Well, actually, I, I think Stevenson has actually written that book, at least to some extent. Um, but getting back to Weltpolitik and the, and the German Navy, uh, I take it you would not agree with the argument is by Stevenson and another, a number of other his, uh, scholars that uh, after 1912, there was a distinct cooling in the, uh, Anglo-German uh, naval arms race and that in fact Germany De facto, at least among themselves, acknowledges that the that particular naval arms race is lost. The UK has won it.
1: Yes, but you know why that is. I mean, yes, that's well known. But the reason is because they've decided to spend more money on the. Oh, arms. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Th- I mean, that's I mean,
0: part of I mean, the arms it, race. That is
1: well known. I mean, I don't. I think Stevenson was reinventing the egg, as it were, with that. That that is absolutely well known. Um, but the reason was that you know, it's rather like Geoffrey um, Simcox's work on France in 1693 to 94. They had the largest navy in the world, um, but they were also at war by 1693 with Austria, the Dutch. Uh, The English and the Spaniards, they realize they can't do both. And they, as it were, stop putting money into the Navy and the English take over and have the largest Navy in the world in their place. Um, uh, You know, the I mean, it's very well established that Germany moves to put much more of an emphasis on the army. I mean, it's already had a big emphasis, let's be clear. And that, you know, you could, if you want to argue that, see that as destabilizing. Um, in that that increases anxiety, but it also, incidentally, in my view, increases the pressure to do something. I mean, if you're putting money into something, there is a pressure to use it. I think that's a really important point. And um, so that I think that the, um, I mean, that's always, I mean, that's always the argument going back earlier. That's always the argument that deterrence itself can be provocative. Uh, which is essentially what you were talking about in the earlier stage when you were asking me about French moves in the Balkans, for example, or French moves with Russia. And that's a way of looking at it, and I'd be an idiot if I ignored that. But I would also say that having the most powerful army in Europe, which is the situation as far as Germany uh, has, if you're combining not just manpower but also technology and readiness to act, um, essentially creates a context in which within which there is an assumption that you have to act, because if you don't act, what's the hell of the point of this? And the danger is that you will lose your advantage, which is you know, one of Moltke's great anxieties, uh, your relative advantage, or your domestic political critics, and that goes back to Fisher and the, his talk about the socialists, your domestic political critics will demand money spent on something else. Or maybe even the ghastly navalists will come back again and want money spent on them. So, so there is there is this kind of um, logic, um, logic. I use logic in inverted commas here. There is this kind of logic that stems from the um, the size of the army. Um, and you know, we without trying to make political points about the last twenty years, you can see. The same kind of view in some states in the world, some governments, some politicians, you know, we have the force, we ought to use it. If we don't use it, what's the point of it? And I think it's fair to say sometimes, you know, I would argue that the NATO commitment in Afghanistan was fundamentally derived from the determination of NATO uh, the NATO organization, after the rifts over Iraq, with the French and the Germans being unwilling to act, whereas the Americans and the British were keen to act, um, the idea was Afghanistan. They could find a new purpose to show um, you know the, the continued vitality uh, uh, of the organization whether that was actually worth doing is now something which one can put I think at the time I put enormous question marks against it but you could see where this was coming from in military terms you know we've got this force if we've got this organization if we don't use it it is likely to unravel or we're going to use, lose in, in American terms our budget lines uh,
0: so in, 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 would you argue I'm sorry would you then agree or disagree with um, uh, those who argue Stevenson, among and others, even uh, Annika Mombauer, although she's originally a uh, protege of John Roll, and as you know, John Roll is is not only neo-Fisherite. Very so critical of Wilhelm. Yes, yeah, actually, not only neo-Fisherite, but probably full-fledged Fisherite. Um, the neo doesn't apply to him. But in any case. Uh, all of these scholars uh, posit that uh, by the June of 1914, uh, Russia is clearly winning the arms race. There is a number, that's um, observable by comments by a number of contemporaries at the time, um, and that um, this would be part of the background, as it were, to decisions which were made uh, in the continent in the July crisis.
1: Well, I think it's certainly the case, and again, I think, I mean, Taylor was discussing this when he was talking about, you know, all this stuff on trains. I mean, do you remember there's all this stuff about the um, French financing of Russian train development in Poland and that this is, you know, was going to, they thought was going to come on tap in 1915, which would enable Russia to mobilize faster so that if they attacked France first, the Russians would actually be able to attack them in the rear, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, There are several things to say about whether Russia was winning the arms race um, um, and whether that was an accurate or inaccurate perception, which, of course, is a related question. Certainly in 1914, the Russian invasion of East Prussia does not suggest that the Russian army was operating at a particularly high level of effectiveness. I think that's an element one can bring out. That's one way. I, I'm, these are various elements we're talking about. I'm not you, they, they pull in different directions, okay? Number two, I think it's fair to say that going right back to the 18th century, and you can think of um, the Russian occupation of Berlin in 1760, for example, brief occupation, but there was an occupation. Um, there was a um, Prussian anxiety about uh, Russia, which may in fact have been disproportionate by the early 20th century. And in the sense that what I mean by that is that Russia was a great power able to deploy force readily into even Western Europe, Suvorov, for example, into Switzerland during the War of the Second Coalition, Russian troops into Holland during the War of the Second Coalition, of course, Russian troops as far as as far as Paris in the um, in the uh, uh, final campaigns against Napoleon, um, and you know this same uh, Russia into Hungary in 1849. There is, uh, I would suggest that Russia actually, compared to that apex of its power projection, um, I would suggest that Russia is less powerful by far. Um, in the um, early 20th century, not least because it now has a significant opponent to its rear. Um, Japan, and OK, Britain and Japan are allies after 1902, and if Russia has better relations with Britain after 1907, the Russians can hope the British will restrain uh, the Japanese, but, you know, let's be clear. If you're a... A Russian policymaker concerned about the China question. You're going to be really bothered about Japan by this period. So there is this point of, are the are the Germans exaggerating um, a threat from Russia? Are they exaggerating it? And when I say the Germans, I mean some German commentators. Are they exaggerating it? because they are being foolish or are they exaggerating it deliberately in order to encourage a build up of the army estimates and we could have an interesting discussion about that one uh, because again that uh, that, uh, emphasizes the ambiguity of evidence and then on top of that I mean you cite Anika Mombar who I think is a very good scholar. Her argument, as I under... Well, I've read the book. Her argument, I've met her, her argument uh, is that the German general staff overrated itself, that they um, were nowhere near as good as they thought that they'd failed to devise necessary plan B, as she puts it. Um, Well, if that's the case, where does that leave... And she's really writing about 1914 there. um, Where does that leave the situation prior to the war in terms of their, the input of their intelligence assessments into their planning processes. So what I'm saying is I think there's a lot more up in the air here and a lot more lack of clarity, but to my mind, one should be looking at documents from the period, surviving documents from the period in terms of the kind of traditional German source criticism. Why is this being said, not this is necessarily accurate so the fact that somebody says russia is winning the arms race doesn't mean russia is winning the arms race it means at that specific moment that person thought it was expedient to say that that is not the same thing as proof and i I, you know as i said i think the jury i'm fully prepared to accept that people have different points of view Mine, and you know, it may well be in the fullness of time that they are shown to be accurate, and I'm shown to be flawed and inaccurate. But what I would say at the present moment is a lot of the citation of material is rather innocent of what I would say is the necessary source criticism.
0: Mm, that that that's um, very apt and pertinent. Although I, I although I um, would like to say that the um, it was more or less a consensus opinion. Among most European elites, I remember distinctly a um, minute by uh, the permanent Undersecretary of State of the British Foreign Office, Sir Arthur Nicholson, in which he harps on the fact that Russia was winning the arms race that or more particularly that Germany was losing it, and that therefore the u k. had to keep in step and be ever more uh, considerate of Russian um, uh, Russian uh, desires. By virtue of the fact that if that were if the UK did not do that, um, Russia would always have the possibility of a rapprochement with the uh, Germans. Um, but uh, let's switch over, if if for a minute, um, to uh, the Balkans and in particular uh, Russian policy there uh, from 1911 to 1914. Uh, again the the Clark argument or, or as well as the Schmidt argument is that Russian policy in terms of the Balkan leagues was uh, in, inherently aggressive vis-a-vis Austria-Hungary. Not not um, so much or not at all actually if you could, you could argue um, against Germany but very aggressive vis-a-vis Austria-Hungary and that this is part of the background of in terms of um, policies which were adopted in the July crisis.
1: Well, yes. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, Russia and Austria had been competing in the Balkans from the beginning of the 18th century. Um, and the uh, question of which of the major powers and which of their protégés would benefit from the decline and eventual fall of the Turkish Empire was a very much an 18th century issue. There's very good literature on that. Karl Reuter, for example, wrote very well on that. Alas, it's not generally been read by anybody that writes on the early twentieth century. Again, people seem to think they've invented the wheel, um, so this isn't new, and it's not new that Russia deploys forces in that area. In fact, you may recall that uh, you know in seventeen seventy, there's a Russian fleet in the Aegean, um, uh, smashing the Turks at Kesme. So this isn't new. It's new. It's another iteration of a competition for the um, loyalty support of Balkan. Proto nations, and it's one that Russia had largely won in the 19th century. One can think of um, their great successes against the Turks in the War of 1806 to 12, of which there's no Austrian equivalent, um, and that obviously follows Remyentsev's successes in the late 18th century. One can then think of the Russians again in that era in the 1820s, again in the 1850s, again. Um, in the 1870s, uh, the Russian development of Bulgaria as a proto-state, uh, the Russian interest including the Navy going to Cape Navarino with Greece, uh, the Russian interest in, in Romania. So this isn't new. And in fact, one can play it round the other way round and actually say in some respects, um, the rise of Germany is offering a different source, particularly, um, you know, you're interested in armaments, particularly of the supply of armaments to some of these Balkan states. Um, And it offers a, you know, with the um, league between uh, Germany and Austria, or the alignment between Germany and Austria, it offers an ability for these Balkan states to play off against Russia or to play off against Russia's willingness to try and determine the territorial relationships. So yes, I agree with you entirely. There is, and has been for a very long time, acute tension between Russia and Austria in the Balkans. What is really interesting is if you go all the way back, it hadn't led to war between the two powers. Now, I think there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, you can fight if you wish to fight um, um, surrogate wars by arming your clients and having them, you know, biff each other up. Um, and, you know, there's a certain amount of that. And you could argue uh, that the two Balkan wars represent a stage of that and therefore following through what you were talking about you could argue if you want that this is a new stage of Russian aggression I would say it is sort of traditional Rus- Russian policy making in the Balkans and you know just as the interesting one in some respects I mean the more novel one in some respects though there are earlier examples we know that I'm not an idiot um, but there the, the, is the increased German interest in relations with Turkey and the shift Within the Young Turks, towards a willingness to look um, to Germany, and if, if you want to, you can say that's a destabilizing element within the Balkans. So one can look for a number of destabilizing elements there. What I would say is that this isn't new, um, and uh, you know, I, I'm you know, I'm just worried about this um, the tendency to look absolutely everywhere for um, inappropriate or bellicose or whatever term you wish to use i mean any term has its danger that its value seem, may seem to be value laden to, to listeners but you know the determination to look for it anywhere other than in the case of um of uh austria and uh, germany and You know, we had a very interesting discussion, you may recall, um, in which you made a number of really excellent points when we were talking about appeasement and the the effort subsequently by people to, as it were, shift the blame for appeasement away from the Soviet Union and Germany, of course, and instead to, to place them on Britain and France. And, you know, I do find that although each crisis is different i do fear there are similar sorts of attitudes playing a role uh here um i don't mean by that to imply that um distinguished scholars are doing that but i do it does remind me quite a bit about the publication of documents after world war one indeed as you know the publication during world war one as each of the powers including the western powers i'm not denying that for a second sought to vindicate their position during the war, and after the war, sought to vindicate it anew. And I'm a bit troubled by that. Let's just put it like
0: that. No, that, that's a fair point. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with it. Um, but in terms of, uh, just, a, just to clarify, in terms of the Balkans, um, from 1895 to 1905, there was a Russo-Austrian agreement to put, quote, the Balkans on ice, unquote. That held um, up for that time period. It's only after the debacle of the um, Russo-Japanese War and uh, Russian, um, uh, Russian attempts to recover that Russian interest goes back to the Balkans from the Far East, and that's where the origins of the Russian interest in the Balkan Leagues comes out. But let's switch over if for a minute. Uh, what do you make of the two arguments? It's a parallel argument. I'm not sure they cite each other. Um, Niall Ferguson and John Charmley's argument that uh, whatever wh- whoever was the aggressor in, in terms of July 1914, uh, Germany or otherwise, uh, the UK did not and should not have um, did not have a strategic interest. In the balance of power in Europe, and the UK should not have got involved in the Great War.
1: Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, that's a fascinating one. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obviously familiar with it. You see that, Niel Ferguson's Pity of War, for example. Um, again, uh, <laughs> it, it, how easy it is for historians to do that is is. Uh, a matter of debate. I mean, Nafziger is an absolutely brilliant man. I mean, his point for a long time was that Germany had ended up as the dominant power in Europe. In which case, what was the point of fighting World War One uh, in a fruitless attempt to stop that? And you know, there's also the argument that World War One, though this is not to the fore, of his view that World War One uh, leads to Hitler and in the meantime had wrecked Britain. And you know, that is a perfectly reasonable proposition in the sense that it is not a counterfactual that was not made at the time as you will be aware there were liberal politicians um, who uh, broke with the government over the war itself just as there were subsequently liberal politicians who broke with the government over the introduction of conscription so it's entirely reasonable to say that not everybody in Britain, we're not just talking about a few mavericks, not everybody in Britain thought this was a good idea. And then separate to that is the argument which Andrew Lambert has made more recently, that um, if the British were going to fight World War I, they should have fought in the kind of what he sees as the navalist approach, a traditional indirect approach, one little heart was subsequently to write about, and that the mistake was to become committed to large-scale uh, deployment of troops raised by conscription, eventually on uh, the Western Front, and that this, in Lambert's eyes, was he associates the um, navalism with the Liberals, and that this was essentially a conservative idea. Which he, and he associates the army, in particular, with the Conservatives, and you know he he links that to the state of British politics at that period of the development of coalition government. Now. Those are important views. Um, I'm not sure quite how best to comment on them in the sense that um, I myself, and you know, I'm, years ago I wrote on 18th century Tory attitudes to foreign policy, and I have edited a book on Tory attitudes to foreign policy, and In the 18th century Tory attitude, rather different to the 20th century conservative attitude, in the 18th century Tory attitude, the Tories were anti-interventionists. They preferred to focus on naval warfare, colonial operations, amphibious attacks, but they were opposed to the deployment of large forces in continental Europe, and they took that position in the War of the Spanish Succession, the War of the Austrian Succession, the Seven Years' War, etc., so if you were to play that view through into the early 20th century, you would say that it would have been wiser not to get involved in World War One. The, the difficulty with that view is that German victory in World War I was not an attractive proposition, and it wasn't an attractive proposition in all sorts of ways, both in terms of the more broad um, diplomatic and international culture, uh, notably that of the idea of the position of neutral powers and small states, specifically Belgium. But, you know, why not next next year Holland or Denmark or, you know, whatever, Norway? Uh, And also, obviously, the question that a stronger Germany uh, would be potentially in a position to renew or pursue a new uh, Weltpolitik and uh, that this, would not be in British interests. And you've already raised the possibility of the, 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 as it were, the Dreikaiserbund coming back, the possibility of a uh, um, German-Russian reconciliation. And that, again, would put enormous pressure on the British Empire, with potentially Russia pressing again on the British in the... um, in India, Greater India, uh, in the Far East and you know the British might well have been in a very difficult position. So there are all of those views that you can bring forward equally as Charmley and Ferguson have pointed out, uh, Ferguson more specifically on World War I, Charmley more specifically on World War II, um, commitment to war uh, was definitely was harmful to Britain and even if they'd been able to stay neutral for a lot of time and sort of be a, you know, appeasers like the Americans had till they eventually came in or felt themselves forced to come in in 1917 and 1941, uh, that the British would have been better off. Um, you know, your listeners will have their own views on it. I mean, and what I always find funny is Americans telling you and they tell me in, in no sure, you know, endlessly that how essentially it was that Britain should have fought Germany in 1914. And they feel should have fought Britain in Germany in 1938, let alone 39. But of course, they shouldn't have to because they have special circumstances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I always find that quite funny. So I'm not going to I'm going to ask your listeners, most of whom I think are American to reflect on it rather than actually, as it were, uh, rushing in myself.
0: Hmm. Very, very apt. Uh, So to um, sum up, Jeremy, uh, what would your um, uh, final concluding remarks be about this uh, discussion?
1: Well, my final concluding remarks, first of all, there has been the wealth of most astonishing scholarship, and I think that's really impressive. And I think it continues and it shows us the strength of this form of history. I mean, there is no doubt at all that one of the more unfortunate aspects of history is the fascination at the moment with identity politics, and gender and sexuality is not producing work of comparable scholarly weight of archival grasp and of an understanding of really complex subjects which are directly pertinent to the modern day. So the workings of international relations. So that's point number one. Point number two is I think that the complexity of a multilateral system is one that makes any individual viewpoint, including mine, yours, and everybody else's we've been mentioning, while simultaneously valuable but also limited. So, therefore, one does benefit from reading from a multiplicity of viewpoints. You should never uh, take on board anybody that. Says that they are definitive and you should always take with an enormous grain of salt if anybody you are told is definitive. But nevertheless, you want to read as widely as possible. Thirdly, in my mind, if for any struggle, whether it's World War I or any struggle earlier or later or contemporary, one needs to always understand the independent dynamics of the military systems, military tasking, the military as lobbyists. Uh, rather than simply to treat them largely as subordinates of the policy-making center, and particularly a policy-making center set by diplomatic purpose uh, and uh, professionals. So I think um, this has been, to my mind, an astonishingly fruitful discussion. It's been really interesting for me. Um, And I think that you could run through similar ways of bringing forward the range of scholarship to show how we should take new books and new insights. um, And there were a lot of important books published in this field in the um, 20 teens. And one that best understands them both as contributions in their own right, but also books that have to be thought about and should be thought about with reference not just to earlier works, but also broad conceptual and methodological questions that are endlessly open to debate and because of that, endlessly important.
0: Oh, I would wholeheartedly agree with that, and in particular, uh, your comments on uh, identity politics and how um, you could argue, at least I'm of the opinion of, that uh, identity politics are how it's negatively impacting, or one is almost tempted to say, subverting history as it should be practiced.
1: I agree with you entirely. I mean, it has become a a part of a partisan politics. It is intellectually naive, uh, pedagogically dubious, and actually destructive of the subject. I I couldn't agree with you more. And the sad thing is that um, uh, aspects of the profession, which were real ways in which people were encouraged to uh, to develop uh, critical faculties, the study of medieval documents, the study of diplomatic documents, uh, the understanding of particular crises have been thrown away with people essentially talking about not how people think, but how they, the modern observer, feels. Well, feeling is fine, but feeling is what my dog does, well, as it were. Um, you know, that thinking is actually what makes us different as a... Uh, as a species, and it's also absolutely crucial to the way in which we have to engage with the problems of the present day and to use the past in order to illuminate them.
0: I think that might be a topic of a future Arguing History podcast. Uh, With that observation, Jeremy, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to Arguing History podcast channel on the new books network thank you again jeremy thank you very much Charles.